0: Chapter Five of *The End of the Tether* by Joseph Conrad. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Chapter Five: The End of the Tether. As soon as he had come up quite close, he said, mouthing in a growl, oh, "What's this I hear, Wally? Is it true you're selling the fair maid?" Captain Wally, looking away, said, "The thing was done. Money had been paid that morning." and the other expressed at once his approbation of such an extremely sensible proceeding. He had got out of his trap to stretch his legs, he explained, on his way home to dinner. Sir Frederick looked well at the end of his time, didn't he? Captain Wellie could not say, he had only noticed the carriage going past. The master attendant, plunging his hands into the pockets of an alpaca jacket, inappropriately short and tight for a man of his age and appearance, strutted with a slight limp, and with his head reaching only to the shoulder of Captain Wally, who walked easily, staring straight before him. They had been good comrades years ago, almost intimates. At the time when Wally commanded the renowned Condor, Elliot had charge of the nearly as famous ring-dove for the same owners. And when the appointment of Master Attendant was created, Wally would have been the only other serious candidate. But Captain Wally, then in the prime of life, was resolved to serve no one but his own auspicious fortune. Far away, tending his hot irons, he was glad to hear the other had been successful. There was a worldly suppleness in bluff Ned Elliot that would serve him well in that sort of official appointment and they were so dissimilar at bottom that as they came slowly to the end of the avenue before the cathedral, it had never come into Wally's head that he might have been in that man's place provided for to the end of his days. The sacred edifice, standing in solemn isolation amongst the converging avenues of enormous trees, as if to put grave thoughts of heaven into the hours of ease, presented a closed Gothic portal to the light and glory of the West. The glass of the rosace above the ogive glowed like fiery coal in the deep carvings of a wheel of stone. The two men faced about. "'I'll tell you what they ought to do next, Wally,' growled Captain Elliot suddenly. "'Well, they ought to send a real live lord out here when Sir Frederick's time is up, eh?' Captain Wally perfunctorily did not see why a lord of the right sort should not do as well as anyone else. But this was not the other's point of view. "'No, no, place runs itself. Nothing can stop it now.' "'Good enough for a lord,' he growled in short sentences. "'Look at the changes in our time. We need a lord here now. They've got a lord in Bombay.' He dined once or twice every year at the government house, a many-windowed, arcaded palace upon a hill laid out in roads and gardens, and lately he had been taking about a duke in his master attendant's steam launch to visit the harbour improvements. Before that he had most obligingly gone out in person to pick out a good berth for the ducal yacht. Afterwards he had an invitation to lunch on board. The duchess herself lunched with them. A big woman with a red face, complexion quite sunburnt. He should think ruined. Very gracious manners. They were going on to Japan.' He ejaculated these details for Captain Wally's edification, pausing to blow out his cheeks as if with a pent-up sense of importance, and repeatedly protruding his thick lips till the blunt crimson end of his nose seemed to dip into the milk of his moustache. The place ran itself. It was fit for any lord. It gave no trouble except in its marine department. In its marine department, he repeated twice and after a heavy snort began to relate how, the other day, Her Majesty's Consul-General in French Cochin, China, had cabled to him in his official capacity, asking for a qualified man to be sent over to take charge of a Glasgow ship whose master had died in Saigon. "'I sent word of it to the officers' quarters and the sailors' home,' he continued, while the limp in his gait seemed to grow more accentuated with the increasing irritation of his voice." Places full of them. Twice as many men as there are berths going in the local trade. All hungry for an easy job. Twice as many. And what do you think, Wally? He stopped short. His hands clenched and thrust deeply downward, seemed ready to burst the pockets of his jacket. A slight sigh escaped Captain Wally. Hey, eh? You'd think they'd be falling over each other. Not a bit of it. Frightened to go home. Nice and warm out here to lie about a veranda waiting for a job. I sit and wait in my office. Nobody. What did they suppose? That I was going to sit there like a dummy with the Consul General's cable before me. Not likely. So I looked up a list of them I keep by me and sent word for Hamilton, the worst loafer of them all, and just made him go. Threatened to instruct the steward of the sailors' home to have him turned out neck and crop. He did not think the berth was good enough, if you please. I have your little records by me, said I. You came ashore here eighteen months ago, and you haven't done six months' work since. You are in debt for your board now at the home, and I suppose you reckon the marine office will pay in the end, eh? So it shall be, but if you don't take this chance, away you go to England, assisted passage by the first homeward steamer that comes along. You're no better than a pauper. We don't want any white paupers here. I scared him, but look at the trouble all this gave me. "'You would not have had any trouble,' Captain Wally said, "'almost involuntarily, if you had sent for me.' Captain Elliot was immensely amused. He shook with laughter as he walked. But suddenly he stopped laughing. A vague recollection had crossed his mind. Hadn't he heard it said at the time of the Travencore and Deccan smash that poor Wally had been cleaned out completely? "'Fellows hard up, by heavens!' he thought. And at once he cast a sidelong glance at his companion. But Captain Wally was smiling austerely straight before him, with a carriage of the head inconceivable in a penniless man, and he became reassured. Impossible. Could not have lost everything. That ship had been only a hobby of his. And the reflection that a man who had confessed to receiving that very morning a presumably large sum of money was not likely to spring upon him a demand for a small loan, put him entirely at his ease again. There had come a long pause in their talk, however, and Not knowing how to begin again, he growled out soberly, "'We old fellows ought to take a rest now.' "'The best thing for some of us would be to die at the oar,' Captain Wally said negligently. "'Come now, aren't you a bit tired by this time of the whole show?' muttered the other sullenly. "'Are you?' Captain Elliot was, infernally tired. He only hung on to his berth so long in order to get his pension on the highest scale before he went home. It would be no better than poverty, anyhow. Still, it was the only thing between him and the workhouse, and he had a family. Three girls, as He knew. He gave Harry, old boy, to understand that these three girls were a source of the greatest anxiety and worry to him, enough to drive a man distracted. "'Why, what have they been doing now?' asked Captain Wally, with a sort of amused absent-mindedness. "'Doing. Doing nothing. That's just it. Lawn, tennis and silly novels from morning to night.' if one of them at least had been a boy, but all three. And, as ill luck would have it, there did not seem to be any decent young fellows left in the world. When he looked around in the club, he saw only a lot of conceited popinjays, too selfish to think of making a good woman happy. The extreme indigence stared him in the face with all that crowd to keep at home. He had cherished the idea of building himself a little house in the country, in Surrey, to end his days in, but he was afraid it was out of the question and his staring eyes rolled upwards with such a pathetic anxiety that Captain Wally charitably nodded down at him, restraining a sort of sickening desire to laugh. "'You must know what it is yourself, Harry. Girls are the very devil for worry and anxiety.' "'Aye, but mine is doing well,' Captain Wally pronounced slowly, staring to the end of the avenue. The master attendant was glad to hear this, uncommonly glad. He remembered her well. A pretty girl she was. Captain Welly, stepping out carelessly, assented as if in a dream. She was pretty. The procession of carriages was breaking up. One after another they left the file to go off at a trot, animating the vast avenue with their scattered life and movement. But soon the aspect of dignified solitude returned and took possession of the straight, wide road. A Assise in white stood at the head of a Burma pony, harnessed to a varnished two-wheel cart, and the whole thing waiting by the curb, seemed no bigger than a child's toy forgotten under the soaring trees. Captain Elliot waddled up to it and made as if to clamour in but refrained, and keeping one hand resting easily on the shaft, he changed the conversation from his pension, his daughters and his poverty, back again to the only other topic in the world, the marine office, the men and the ships of the port. He proceeded to give instances of what was expected of him, and his thick voice drowsed in the still air like the obstinate droning of an enormous bumblebee. Captain Wally did not know what was the force or the weakness that prevented him from saying good-night and walking away. It was as though he had been too tired to make the effort. How queer! More queer than any of Ned's instances! Or was it that overpowering sense of idleness alone that made him stand there and listen to these stories? Nothing very real had ever troubled Ned Elliot, and gradually he seemed to detect deep in, as if wrapped up in the gross wheezy rumble, something of the clear hearty voice of the young captain of the ring dove. He wondered if he too had changed to the same extent, and it seemed to him that the voice of his old chum had not changed so very much, that the man was the same. Not a bad fellow, the pleasant jolly Ned Elliot, Friendly, well up to his business, and always a bit of a humbug. He remembered how he used to amuse his poor wife. She could read him like an open book. When the condor and the ring dove happened to be in port together, she would frequently ask him to bring Captain Elliot for dinner. They had not met often since the old days. Not once in five years, perhaps. He regarded him from under his white eyebrows. This man he could not bring himself to take into his confidence at this juncture and the other went on in his intimate outpourings, and as remote from his hearer as though he had been talking on a hilltop a mile away. He was in a bit of a quandary now as to the steamer Sophala. Ultimately every hitch in the port came into his hands to undo. They would miss him when he was gone in another eighteen months, and most likely some retired naval officer had been pitchforked into the appointment, a man that would understand nothing and care less. That steamer was a coasting craft, having a steady trade connection as far north as Tenassarim, but the trouble was she could get no captain to take her on a regular trip. Nobody would go in her. He really had no power, of course, to order a man to take a job. It was all very well to stretch a point on the demand of a consul-general, but... What's the matter with the ship? Captain Wally interrupted in measured tones. Nothing's the matter. Sound old steamer. Her owner has been in my office this afternoon, tearing his hair. "'Is he a white man?' asked Wally, in an interested voice. "'He calls himself a white man,' answered the master attendant scornfully. "'But if so, it's just skin-deep and no more. "'I told him that to his face, too.' "'But who is he, then?' "'He's the chief engineer of her. See that, Harry?' "'I see,' Captain Wally said thoughtfully. "'The engineer, I see.' "'Other fellow came to be a ship-owner at the same time was quite a tale.' He came out third in a home ship nearly fifteen years ago, Captain Elliot remembered, and got paid off after a bad sort of row, both with his skipper and his chief. Anyway, they seemed jolly glad to get rid of him at all costs, clearly a mutinous sort of chap. Well, he remained out here a perfect nuisance, everlastingly shipped and unshipped, unable to keep a berth very long, pretty nigh went through every engine room afloat belonging to the colony. Then suddenly, what do you think happened, Harry?' Captain Wally, who seemed lost in a mental effort as of doing a sum in his head, gave a slight start. He really couldn't imagine. The master attendant's voice vibrated dully with hoarse emphasis. The man actually had the luck to win the second prize in the Manila Lottery. All these engineers and officers of ships took tickets in that gamble. It seemed to be a perfect mania with them all. Everybody expected now that he would take himself off home with his money and go to the devil in his own way not at all. The Safala, judged too small and not quite modern enough for the sort of trade she was in, could be got for a moderate price from her owners, who had ordered a new steamer from Europe. He rushed in and bought her. This man had never given any sign of that sort of mental intoxication the mere fact of getting hold of a large sum of money may produce, not till he got a ship of his own but then he went off his balance all at once came bouncing into the marine office on some transfer business with his hat hanging over his left eye and switching a little cane in his hand and told each one of the clerks separately that nobody could put him out now it was his turn there was no one over him on earth and there never would be either He swaggered and strutted between the desks, talking at the top of his voice and trembling like a leaf all the while, so that the current business of the office was suspended for the time he was in there, and everybody in the big room stood open-mouthed looking at his antics. Afterwards he could be seen during the hottest hours of the day, with his face as red as fire rushing along up and down the quays to look at his ship from different points of view he seemed inclined to stop every stranger he came across just to let them know that there would be no longer anyone over him he had bought a ship nobody on earth could put him out of his engine-room now good bargain as she was the price of the cephala took up pretty near all the lottery money he had left himself no capital to work with That did not matter so much, for these were the halcyon days of steam-coasting trade, before some of the home shipping firms had thought of establishing local fleets to feed their main lines, These, when once organised, took the biggest slice out of that cake, of course, and by and by a squad of confounded German tramps turned up east of the Suez Canal and swept up all the crumbs. They prowled on the cheap to and fro along the coast and between the islands like a lot of sharks in the water, ready to snap up anything you let drop. And then the old high times were over for good. For years the Sephala had made no more, he judged, than a fair living. Captain Elliot looked upon it as his duty in every way to assist an English ship to hold her own, and it stood to reason that if, for want of a captain, the Sephala began to miss her trips, she would very soon lose her trade. There was the quandary. The man was too impracticable. Too much of a beggar on horseback from the first, he explained, seemed to grow worse as the time went on. In the last three years he's run through eleven skippers. He had tried every single man here outside of the regular lines. I'd warned him before that this would not do. And now, of course, no one will look at the Safala. I had one or two men up at my office and talked to them, but as they said to me, what was the good of taking the berth to lead a regular dog's life for a month and then get the sack at the end of the first trip? The fellow, of course, told me it was all nonsense, that there had been a plot hatching for years against him. And now it had come. All the horrid sailors in the port had conspired to bring him to his knees because he was an engineer. Captain Elliot emitted a throaty chuckle. And the fact is that if he misses a couple more trips, he need never trouble himself to start again. He won't find any cargo in his old trade. There's too much competition nowadays for people to keep their stuff flying about for a ship that does not turn up when she's expected. It's a bad lookout for him. He swears he'll shut himself up on board and starve to death in his cabin rather than sell her, even if he could find a buyer. And that's not likely in the least. Not even the Japs would give her insured value for her. It isn't like selling sailing ships. Steamers do get out of date, besides getting old. He must have laid by a good bit of money, though, observed Captain Wally quietly. The harbourmaster puffed out his purple cheeks to an amazing size. Not a stiver, Harry, not a single stiver. He waited, but as Captain Wally, stroking his beard slowly, looked down on the ground without a word, he tapped him on the forearm, tiptoed and said in a hoarse whisper, The Manila Lottery has been eating him up. He frowned a little, nodding in tiny affirmative jerks. They were all going in for it, a third of the wages paid to ship's officers, in my port, he snorted, went to Manila. It was a mania. That fellow Massey had been bitten by it, like the rest of them from the first, but after winning once, he seemed to have persuaded himself he had only to try again to get another big prize. He had taken dozens and scores of tickets for every drawing since. What with this vice and his ignorance of affairs, ever since he had improvidently bought that steamer, he had been more or less short of money. This, in Captain Elliot's opinion, gave an opening for a sensible sailor man with a few pounds to step in and save that fool from the consequences of his folly. It was his craze to quarrel with his captains. He had had some really good men, too, who would have been too glad to stay if he would only let them. But no, he seemed to think that he was no owner unless he was kicking somebody out in the morning and having a row with the new man in the evening. What was wanted for him was a master with a couple of hundred or so to take an interest in the ship on proper conditions. You don't discharge a man for no fault only because of the fun of telling him to pack up his traps and go ashore when you know that in that case you're bound to buy back his share. On the other hand, a fellow with an interest in the ship is not likely to throw up his job in a huff about a trifle. He had told Massey that. He had said, "'This won't do, Mr Massey. "'We're getting very sick of you here in the maritime office.' What you must do now is to try whether you could get a sailor to join you as a partner. That seems to be the only way. And that was sound advice, Harry. Captain Wally, leaning on his stick, was perfectly still all over, and his hand, arrested in the act of stroking, grasped his whole beard. And what did the fellow say to that? The fellow had the audacity to fly out at the master attendant. He had received the advice in a most impudent manner. "'I didn't come here to be laughed at,' he had shrieked. "'I appeal to you as an Englishman and a shipowner brought to the verge of ruin by an illegal conspiracy of your beggarly sailors, and all you condescend to do for me is to tell me to go and get a partner.' The fellow had presumed to stamp with rage on the floor of the private office. "'Where was he going to get a partner?' Was he being taken for a fool? Not a single one of that contemptible lot ashore at the home had tuppence in his pocket to bless himself with. The very native curs in the bazaar knew that much. "'And it's true enough, Harry,' rumbled Captain Elliot, judicially. "'They're much more likely one and all to owe money to the Chinamen in Denham Road for the clothes on their backs.' "'Well,' said I, "'you make too much noise over it for my taste, Mr. Massey. Good morning.' he banged the door after him he dared to bang my door confound his cheek the head of the marine department was out of breath with indignation then recollecting himself as it were i'll end by being late for dinner yarning with you here wife doesn't like it he clambered ponderously into the trap leaned out sideways and only then wondered wheezily what on earth captain wally could have been doing with himself of late "'They'd had no sight of each other for years and years till the other day "'when he had seen him unexpectedly in the office. "'What on earth?' "'Captain Whalley seemed to be smiling to himself in his white beard. "'The earth is big,' he said vaguely. "'The other, as if to test the statement, stared all round from his driving seat. "'The esplanade was very quiet.' Only from afar, from very far, a long way from the seashore, across the stretches of grass, through the long ranges of trees, came faintly the toot-toot-toot to the cable car, beginning to roll before the empty peristyle of the public library on its three-mile journey to the new harbour dogs. "'Doesn't seem to be so much room in it,' growled the master attendant, "'since these Germans came along, shouldering us at every turn. It was not so in our time.' He fell into deep thought, breathing stertorously, as though he had been taking a nap open-eyed. Perhaps he, too, on his side, had detected in the silent, pilgrim-like figure standing there by the wheel, like an arrested wayfarer, the buried lineaments of the features belonging to the young captain of the Condor. Good fellow, Harry Wally. Never very talkative. You never knew what he was up to. A bit too off-hand with people of consequence, and apt to take a wrong view of a fellow's actions. Fact was, he had a too good opinion of himself. He would have liked to tell him to get in and drive him home to dinner, but one never knew. Wife would not like it. And it's funny to think, Harry, he went on in a big, subdued drone, that of all the people on it, there seems only you and I left to remember this part of the world as it used to be. He was ready to indulge in the sweetness of a sentimental mood, had it not struck him suddenly that Captain Wally, unstirring and without a word, seemed to be awaiting something, perhaps expecting. He gathered the reins at once and burst out in bluff-hearty growls. Ha! My dear boy, the men we have known, the ships we've sailed, ay, and the things we've done. The pony plunged. The scythe skipped out of the way. Captain Wally raised his arm. Goodbye. End of chapter five.